I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Some of the most important parts of the U.S. financial system are the most difficult to understand. And perhaps nowhere is this more the case than with the country's corporate bond market. And it's not just the math. It's the very architecture supporting the tens of thousands of bonds exchanging hands every day. You see, despite the billions of dollars that flow through U.S. corporate debt markets, there's no mechanism that offers a consolidated picture of all the available market prices for any of the bonds being bought and sold over the phone or on varying trading platforms, whether they be electronic or otherwise. Now, for decades, commentators have criticized this opacity for undermining the efficiency of the country's bond markets. But now the issue is taking on larger repercussions as the Federal Reserve has tried to prop up America's COVID-stricken economy by leveraging corporate bond markets as corporate life support systems. You see, as part of U.S. efforts to grapple with the economic fallout from the coronavirus, the Fed has rolled out a number of relief measures for companies, including schemes announced in May aimed at purchasing investment-grade and riskier high-yield debt from corporate issuers. But these measures introduce extraordinary discretion on the part of the Fed as to which bonds to buy. And some critics argue that with little transparency available, no one will know exactly whether or not the taxpayer-supported purchases will end up assisting Americans or be a boon to already well-heeled big business. To help walk us through all of this, including a fintech-as-market-infrastructure lesson, I have Chris White, the CEO of the fintech firm BondClick. Now, when it comes to corporate bonds, Chris is the insider's insider. His 20-year career in finance has been dedicated to the evolution of fixed income markets, and he's played a key role at a slew of mainstream firms, from Barclays to Goldman Sachs. So we're delighted to have him on the show to shed some light on what happens when one of the least understood areas of the financial system becomes one of the most important for the economic recovery. I'm a classic man. You can be me when you look this clean. I'm a classic man. Calling on me like a young OG. Chris, thanks so much for joining the show. Oh, it's a pleasure, Chris. And um, I'm really looking forward to digging into this topic because I think it's it's actually something super important where there's just not enough coverage. So your your podcast is a real opportunity for people to get some of the details on on something that could be impacting their lives directly. Well, you know, it's 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 interesting that you say that because, you know, when you think about bond markets, it's not necessarily something that people think about every day. And it's not even something that the fintech community always thinks about. Uh, if, if anything, it's, it's a little bit um, on the back burner of the long list of issues that fintechers tend to uh, think about in terms of their business. But I think maybe it's good to start from a 10,000 foot level. Uh, 
not everyone's too familiar with how bond markets operate. Maybe you can give us an overview of their structure and 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 what makes bond markets special or, or, or different from equity markets, from our stock markets. Sure. I think one rule of thumb is look at the modern day equity markets and subtract about 45 years of uh, evolution, and, and then you'll have the current bond markets. And I, I make that joke and, you know, it's sort of tongue in cheek, but in some ways the corporate bond market is um, about 40 to 50 years behind the equity markets in terms of just basic structure. So one thing I'd, you know, I'd like just you and your listeners to do is if I asked you, like, what's the current price of Microsoft equity, you could give me that answer definitively within the next three seconds. You could search for it. But if I asked you what the current price is on the most actively traded Microsoft bond, and, and keep in mind, they have close to $150 billion in outstanding debt, you would not be able to answer that question definitively, not as a retail person and not actually as even a, an institutional market participant. Uh, there's a lot of question marks as to whether or not the pricing information you're looking at is real and reliable. And so really where equity markets and bond markets start to diverge really starts with the data and the quality of the data. Does that mean that our bond markets are more manual and so there's more just sort of human, um, more human beings who are powering our, our, our bond markets? I mean, certainly uh, in the last 45 years, there's been a lot of changes to our equity markets, much more electronification of our markets, uh, frankly, a lot more tech going into our equity markets. Is, is this a, a tech question or is there something more? It's a combination of several factors. The first thing that you have to look at when you're trying to understand how a market has evolved is you've got to look at the characteristics of the actual product in the market. Now, when we look at equity markets, maybe about 50, 60 years ago, they had a huge increase in just the total outstanding size of equity markets. So back then, their data wasn't structured. There was no electronic trading. And it was because these equity markets had grown that then regulators kind of had to step in and, and or people in the market had to step in and start adding things like consolidated quote systems and centralized feeds. And then obviously electronic trading come off the back of that. So the sort of the, the importance or the size of the market combined with how frequently people want to trade it is normally what drives innovation. When it comes to the corporate bond market, you know, if you're looking over the past 12 to 15 years, the outstanding size of the market has rapidly increased. We just broke the $10 trillion outstanding size uh, barrier. This is something that's never been done before. This year, we've had record issuance in terms of corporate debt. And so now you have a market that's also grown and that's becoming increasingly important to trade because of what you said at the opening of your show. The Fed is now directly participating in the market as a, a support system for the overall economy. So this starts to also push on the same levers that led to innovation um, and the evolution of the equity market, which is if I'm going to try to trade this big, large, ambiguous market consistently, I need better data. And so that's what's going to start to happen to the bond market. So it's certainly at this point in time, Chris, it's it's much more manual uh, much more in-person, lots of talking on the phone in order to get trades done, as opposed to in the equity world, you can kind of press the button and you can trade out of your garage. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's getting there anytime soon, um, especially if the data in the marketplace doesn't get organized. Well, let's actually double down on that. Uh, 
what the Fed is now undertaking with the corporate bond market is unprecedented. And I, I think it's worth unwinding a bit why and, and how that's happening. Uh, maybe you could walk us through the logic and execution of the Fed's new corporate bond program and why it's caught the eye of so many uh, commentators and economists. Certainly. Well, first of all, we, we've all noticed that central banks have been taking a more and more active role in in financial markets, really, I mean, since the 2008 crisis. And so when you look at things like QE or you look at the, the policies that have been put in place in, in other central banks like uh, the ECB or the BOJ, um, it's really been about keeping the market stable, financial market stable. Now, when we look at what, how the Fed reacted to the 2008 crisis, there was direct bond buying. They were directly buying treasury bonds. They were directly buying residential mortgage-backed securities. They were doing these things. The logic behind it is to keep, quote-unquote, liquidity in the market, making sure that people can consistently buy and sell in these markets, um, especially when it comes to residential mortgage-backed securities. You can see why the Fed direct Fed support would be important, because if that market starts to seize up, it would have a direct impact on the ability for individuals to access the mortgage uh, loan markets and, and be able to buy houses. So that's how they, they wanted to um, affect the economy in a positive way dur uh, during the crisis. Fast forward to you know uh, this post-COVID world that we're in, uh, the Fed has decided to follow the aggressive policies that have been in place for years with the ECB and the BOJ in terms of directly buying corporate debt. And where this really starts to be very different, Chris, is you can draw a line between how buying uh, residential mortgage-backed securities helps the American public. It gets a lot more difficult to draw that line when the Fed starts directly uh, buying bonds in the secondary market to help corporations um, access debt capital markets at cheaper prices, especially when some of the purchases they're making are in companies like Apple. That does seem certainly a bit less intuitive given the market capitalization of Apple at near $2 trillion and, and its profits, at least uh, from what I can recall, ticking up near $60 billion. And that's like per quarter, which can't help but make you wonder what are the implications for the public dialogue here. I mean, uh, this is not standard monetary policy, but something different. Uh, it's impacting winners and losers and um, how assistance is being doled out by the Federal Reserve in a very real and tangible way, but um, in markets that are less than fully transparent and, and perhaps operationally uh, mature. What are you seeing in terms of criticisms and praise? Yeah, so, so Chris, this is really the crux of the matter um, around why there are some criticisms that, that I, I think are pretty legitimate um, around the, the, the secondary market corporate credit facility, which is what they call the program in which the Fed is directly buying corporate debt, because the Fed's committing taxpayer capital into a market that is notoriously opaque. And what the Fed has done is um, the responsibilities for committing this capital to the market are really in the hands of BlackRock. That's who the Fed nominated to manage um, the, the, the purchasing of bonds in the secondary market. Uh, where I think things are, are, are a bit loose on the Fed's mandate here is you know, when they talk about the, the guidance on trade execution, the Fed says the facility, which is the, the secondary market corporate credit facility, will purchase eligible corporate bonds at fair market value in the secondary market. 
And this is really where, um, for, for your listeners, it's important to understand something. Fair market value in an opaque market like this is subjective. It's the same thing if I, if, if I tried to buy your house, Chris, and I asked you what the fair market value is, I, I'm sure you and I might have a disagreement on that level. Um, so it's not really possible to do what the Fed is saying. And what makes this uh, you know, potentially a, a big issue is that this is really taxpayer-funded stimulus to help a market where uh, you don't really know whether the taxpayer is getting best execution as um, billions of dollars are being committed to the corporate bond market in terms of direct purchases. So to be clear, your problem isn't necessarily with the policy itself. It's with the tools or environment being relied on to to execute it. And that critique really isn't just a technocratic critique, but what you're introducing is really a governance uh, question, really an, an accountability critique about how to supervise this economically significant deployment of governmental assistance, right? Or, or is there something more here that's going on? Well, let's unpack this, Chris. If the Fed is buying bonds in the secondary corporate bond market, but there's so little high-quality data on what's really happening in the market, what information is the Fed using to determine some really simple things like, hey, is what we're doing working? And when should we stop buying bonds in the secondary corporate bond market? Like, what are we trying to achieve here? Are we looking at the actual market data to know when our bond buying is having a positive effect and when our bond buying is actually enough and we can stop buying bonds? And the reason why this is a problem is because without that data, what we've seen from other central banks is it becomes a perennial policy to just buy bonds directly in the secondary market. If you look at the BOJ and you look at the ECB, they have not stopped. And this is where the accountability around this Fed policy requires more data because that data would say would be able to answer questions like, what bonds are you buying or should you buy? Because it would outline the liquidity associated with the bonds. And they say they're trying to help with bond liquidity. It would also outline whether or not the taxpayer is getting best execution on all of these purchases. And I think that that's really important here. And then there's one other thing that you have to kind of think about. The Fed's now the buyer of last resort in this corporate bond market. Well, who are they trading with consistently? If the Fed is not being equal and democratic around who they're facilitating trades with, in terms of the dealers who are in this market, you can easily see where this policy that's designed to help could create a massive competitive imbalance. You know, we're obviously in the middle of a crisis. And if there's anything that we've seen from the PPP loan distribution um, uh, hiccups uh, all the way now to what you're identifying Average. right now in, in terms of the, the uh, sort of Fed intervention in our bond markets is... Uh, you know that that this stuff is executed on the back of an infrastructure and, and, and an ecosystem that itself may at times need uh, an upgrade. How would you consider you know introducing that kind of upgraded? You know the, the kinds of changes, really the introduction of some kinds of fintech solutions, really um, in, into bond markets uh, to provide the kinds of transparency that that you're seeking. 
Um, but to do so in, a, in in real time, given the fact that there is a pressing need, at least for for some companies, I suppose, to be able to access in, increased uh, assistance from the government in one form or or, or another. Well, look, I'm not, I'm not going to go all infomercial on your podcast, Chris, but that's what I've been working on with my, my team for the past uh, four or five years. We've been building what's what's called a consolidated quote system. It's really a mechanism for creating public transparency in the U.S. corporate bond market, where everyone would have access to where are the bids and offers that are being published for all of the bonds that are being quoted. And it's just a simple piece of architecture to just put all the pricing information in the same place. And an analogy I can make for your listeners is it's the Kelly Blue Book is what we're trying to create for the bond market. And for anyone who's ever had the pleasure of trying to buy a used car, the Kelly Blue Book is the independent reference point so that you know whether the price that you're about to accept is within the context of fair value. And the way that that blue book is put together is really trying to aggregate all of the information, and we're not that different. And so just having that aggregated pricing information available through the BondClick platform allows for a deeper analysis of bond market liquidity, bond market performance, and ultimately, um, you know, the fair market value question can be answered by the market itself instead of someone's subjective opinion. This is going to be a little bit of a perhaps an unusual question, but but it's it's worth asking. I mean, at what point in time is there too much transparency in a market, particularly at a time where you have such enormous financial stress? I mean, certainly when you get to a crisis scenario, there are times where people are a little bit uh, concerned that that if you have too much transparency, it could it could lead to either more panic in markets or behaviors that could end up um, you know leading to a kind of pro-cyclical loop, a doom loop uh, that that ends up uh, engulfing financial institutions? People are afraid of transparency in the way that people would be afraid of water um, if they had a garden and they just dumped a gallon and a half of water on a seedling, right? And then you kill the plant and then you say, oh my God, I guess I shouldn't have put water on the seedling. Transparency is an incredibly powerful element for improving markets, but you have to know the right application for it. You have to have the right amount of transparency in the market in order for it to be effective and not detrimental to the ecosystem. And so that requires having um, thoughtful protocols around who gets access to information. That requires having uh, forethought on the display of information into the market. Who gets to see it is not just one of the questions, but what do they get to see? And so just we have to think a little bit more deeply about how to make a market transparent around basic information without necessarily giving up proprietary data in a public way. And we can get there. That's how the U.S. equity market today, you're able to find out what the fair value is for Microsoft with a click of a button. It's because they worked on the protocols around transparency so that it was additive and not detrimental to the growth of the market. We can do that absolutely in any of the OTC bond markets that are out there today. It's just a matter of knowing what you're doing in terms of those protocols. Maybe we can then re- return back to your um, initial observation as you sort of laid out some of the primary actors 
in the current sort of Fed intervention scheme, right? You know, where, where you have the Fed, you know, you have BlackRock, right? Sort of as, as the asset manager sort of uh, engaged in, in these bond purchases. And then we have, a, again, a relatively basic sort of infrastructure um, for the execution of many of these transactions. Um, you made mention of this word competition, and I find that really right, interesting. Right. And, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Um, and in particular, it seems to me that there's this competition dynamic, maybe even a financial inclusion kind of di- dynamic that, that's built on top in terms of who gets access to that deal flow and who does not. Yep. You, know, you know, could you break down sort of the, the social ecology, if one will, of these kinds of transactions? And, and, and what does that mean for the competitive dynamics on Wall Street? Fine. I, I, I would love to. I think in order to do this well, we first have to just go through the basics here. So effectively, the Fed is giving BlackRock a bunch of money to manage in the market directly. And, and that money is intended to buy corporate bonds to, to, to improve their overall you know, functioning of the secondary market. So that's just the, the basic start. Now, in, in terms of implementing this, uh, BlackRock through this program is not buying corporate bonds directly from other asset managers. They're buying corporate bonds from dealers. Dealers are the intermediaries in the market. So they're the ones that are doing business with other asset managers like Wellington or Alliance Bernstein or State Street. And what the intention of the program is to do is allow the dealers to continue to facilitate trading by giving them an outlet to basically dump their risk. So if I feel like I have a bunch of inventory, I can go to the secondary corporate bond credit facility and I can sell them bonds. So now, if you think about it, if there are 45 dealers in the corporate bond market, being able to sell bonds to this Fed taxpayer-sponsored credit facility it gives you an advantage, right? If I can sell a lot of bonds to this facility, it allows me to go out and do more business with other customers. It allows me to capture more bid offer, offer spread. It allows me to obviously have a bigger year in terms of the profitability of my bond desk. If I'm not doing a lot of trades with this facility, I can't get rid of my risk. I have difficulty trading with customers. And so given that this, this uh Secondary market corporate credit facility is so powerful in terms of being able to influence the performance of a market maker. It now brings in the question how the facility is choosing its trading partners. What criteria is being used to differentiate between dealer A and dealer B when it comes to doing a trade in a single bond? And none of that is in any of the outline for how the Fed intends to implement this program. And that's where the competitive imbalance, I think, could could start to manifest itself in a meaningful way. Now, to the Fed's credit, they are absolutely letting you know who they're doing a bunch of trades with. They, they, they release that information. So I don't think it's their intention to be shady. I think what's, what's going on here is it's maybe not recognizing how um, the unintended consequence of doing something uh, this aggressive in the corporate bond market could create a, a two-tiered system of the haves and the have-nots regarding the market makers in the space. The impact that this could potentially have in the long term is 
less and less dealers in the market will then end up creating an environment in which to trade in this market, there's less competition and therefore the cost of trading goes up for all of the end investors. You know, beyond that particular, let's it's got possible structural development, uh, people are often keyed into the psychology of markets. But that's usually something that, that you see when you're examining the backdrop of some exogenous shock to the market or uh, when a hurting development ends up pumping up asset prices over time. Um, here, however, the Fed intervention itself takes on a variety of dimensions as you're detailing. And the question is, what exactly is that looking like from the standpoint of the psychology of markets? And what can we expect from here on out? Well, it's, you bring up a really interesting point here. I think actually the impact of the Fed in this way has less to do with dealer competition. I'm just talking to you mechanically about you know who they're doing trades with is going to have an impact. And that's, that, that's, that's uh, less... Um, tied to uh, what I would say the psychology in the market. Like customers don't necessarily know um, who the Fed's trading with in real time. But something that has happened, it was actually quite fascinating. The pure announcement by Chairman Powell that the Fed was going to be buying bonds in the secondary market rallied both the debt and equity markets massively. So before even buying a bond in the secondary market, the psychology around where the market's going, or at least the view on where the market's going, had gone from negative to positive. And so it's actually, when you look at how what corporate debt mar markets are, this is quite understandable. Corporate debt markets are bets on whether or not corporations are going to basically be able to pay off their obligations. And when the Fed says, well, we're going to step in and buy corporate debt, you basically know that there's a blank check available for many corporations that are having problems figuring out how they're going to pay off their obligations. And this is why we've seen massive rallies in, in bonds and sectors you wouldn't think of in the COVID era, like seeing rallies in airline bonds or seeing rallies in uh, the bonds of, of, of cruise ships. It's happening because it's assumed that the Fed's going to step in on some of these credits and be the buyer of last resort. And so what's, hap what's happening structurally is bond markets aren't trading based on fundamentals now. They're trading based on whether or not people believe the Fed will step in. And I think there are some real long-term, unintended, dangerous consequences to creating a market system like that. Chris, thank you so much. This has been extremely enlightening, and, and it's going to be equally interesting to see just how this all plays itself out. Thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, well, this is a pleasure, Chris. And um, as this continues to develop, I will bug you to get back on this wonderful podcast if, if, if you think it, it merits uh, another go at it to explain to your audience um, how markets are reacting to, to more of the Fed's policies when it comes to the corporate bond market. Absolutely. You can bet on it. The pandemic has released a slew of unknowns. First, what is COVID-19 and how was it transmitted? Plus, how do we mobilize the resources necessary to create a vaccine? And all at the same time, the government has had to predict the likely economic impact of the pandemic. Not to mention, what are the best tools to minimize 
the worst side effects of the fallout. Now, you'll notice that even in this last query, there are a myriad of smaller questions bundled up inside. We've talked about quite a few policy strategies on this show, from the PPP program to the corporate bond market interventions, and in each, we've seen just how important technology can be. But it's important to emphasize that technology is a means and not an end, and that government officials can have lots of different priorities when it comes to achieving their own policy goals. Now, the public may not be privy to all of the considerations, especially when you get to the rarefied air of the Fed. But make no mistake, to the extent to which taxpayer-funded resources are being committed in ways that can very well end up shaping the future of firms and even industries, the calls for more transparency are only likely to grow. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.